Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hey everyone, we're back again this month for what is episode 35 of Tech Chat. And depending on when you download Tech Chat, it's T minus two weeks to reinvent. Now, I'm sure it's not just us here who's excited. I've had many a conversation with customers and there is a buzz in the air around reinvent. But before we jump into all this goodness, Pete, tell us about your Melbourne Cup break. Hey, that was fun. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Melbourne Cup is, uh, so we're obviously recording this show from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, think of it as the, uh, the Kentucky Derby of racing uh, for those international listeners. Um, and it's really Australia's premier horse race, which goes over you know, 3,200 metres. So that's two miles for those of you who are outside of Australia. Um, and think of it this way, the international prize pool, uh, the total prize pool that goes to all of the potential racing horses is 7.3 million schmackaroos, which is uh, a lot of money, Shane. And the, and the trophy alone is worth a million bucks. Wow. You know, I wonder what sort of trophy that is, Pete. It's, uh, it's, it's gold. And uh, it's uh, also considered you know, a long weekend for some Australians here. And uh, for those of you who are really keen to know who won, it was a uh, uh, cross-counter with a prize money of $4 million bucks, followed by Carmelo at a $1 million. And finally, third place was Prince of Iran at $500,000. So uh, now I can fully appreciate, Shane, why uh, the racing um, bystanders are so super excited. I think most, some of the, uh, the racing companies make a, a lot of quid, a lot of money out of these things. Uh, totally. Totally. So, look, not being a punter myself, I took the opportunity over the long weekend to work on resolving a few gremlins in my house. Oh, yeah? Like so, what? Look, I thought they were electrical, uh-huh. but it ended up being code-based. So, like, I need to start maybe looking at leveraging maybe like an automated testing solution such as Selenium. So, you're t- telling me you write bad code? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? I wrote less than good code. Let's just say <laughs> that. You know, looking back on something I've written a long time ago. Right. Okay. So, what were you debugging? I was debugging some interesting state issues with my garage doors. I have four automated garage doors that I can control mm-hmm. via digital inputs in the house, potentially, you know, phones. And the state of one or two particular doors in an external shed were sometimes false positing, positiving between open and closed. Right, okay. So it wasn't the kids playing with the garage door? No, it wasn't. It ended up being some substandard code. Interesting, interesting. Okay, well, IoT and bad code don't mix. They definitely don't. So look, Pete, they say all roads lead to Rome. And if you look through most monolithic stacks and tier architectures, Rome is our data access layer. And in this episode, we're going to dive deep on the database front. We are indeed. So for all you DBAs out there, you're in for a treat today. And for those who aren't DBAs, rest assured, we will equip you with enough information so you can show them up at the water cooler. Absolutely. But before we get into a huge record set of DB-related goodness, let's do an inner join and get to some news. <laughs> I, I can't do the news, Shane. Uh, I got a, you know, this whole inner join thing. You know, um, just, just a side note, you know, three inner joins, nested inner joins, are a great candidate for a, um, a graph database. So, <laughs> All right. Okay. Now, now I don't know who, who we paid to write the script, but <laughs> this is going to be an interesting show. So, guys, um, um, Shane... In terms of the actual updates, um, what's out there that's new? We often load the show up early with uh, expansion of infrastructure. What's uh, what's new? 
what's new? All right, so look, normally we talk about upcoming summits, but really, you know, there is just one date you need to have now marked in your calendar, and that is November 26th to November 30, which is AWS reInvent. Yay. And look, and by this stage, you're either going or you're probably not as tickets and accommodation are really in short supply. Look, I just signed up uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was really, really low. So uh, if you haven't done so yet, go get your rooms or, uh, yeah, you might be uh, struggling to find good, decent accommodation. Look, keep your ears tuned to this to AWS Tech Chat and we'll help you digest the keynote announcements, the more than 2,000 breakouts and bring you the relevant topics at the depth you've come to love and expect. So, Pete, you'll be there along with Mm -hmm. Ollie and Dean. Tell us more about what you'll be doing there. Yeah, so uh, I'll be, uh, well, first of all, meeting lots of customers, being obviously a customer-obsessed individual like the rest of us here at AWS. Um, Yeah, meeting lots of customers. Uh, I'll be doing analyst briefings. Um, I'll be uh, catching up with uh, some old friends. But also at the um, end of uh, most days, uh, I'm scheduled to be doing some uh, web streaming. So if you tune into the um, live stream from the Sydney Summit earlier this year, we'll be doing more of that. So it'll be a recap with Sean, Ray, and I, uh, and a few other guests we'll be talking about um, and digesting um, some of the announcements that have been made during those days during reInvent. Sounds good. I think we need to you know, make this a bit fun for our listeners here. So for those of you who are going to reInvent, if anyone spots and finds an AWS Tech Chat presenter, come and say hi, snap a selfie, and send it through to... AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. So if you send it to that, we'll uh, we'll limit this to the first ten people. We don't have that much swag, um, but uh, yeah, send us some cool, interesting photos with uh, with the hosts. Awesome. All right. So look on the expansion front. Yes. No new regions to announce today, but our edge locations continue to grow. We have added in another eight edge locations in the last two weeks. It was actually two whilst preparing the show notes, but we snuck in another six yesterday. That's impressive. So. Uh, that's a lot of uh, edge location, Shane. Yeah. Do you know how many, Pete? Uh, I think it's 144 from memory. Good job, be... Pete. Yeah, I got it. Okay, it good. is 144. <laughs> so these new ones are coming out of Faruja in the UAE and Paris, France, as well as in Hyderabad, New Delhi, and London. So two in Hyderabad, one in New Delhi, and another two in London, as well as Hillsborough. Awesome. So both Hyderabad and India and Hillsborough, Oregon are brand new locations. And with this launch, CloudFront increases its average request processing capacity in India and the UK by up to 55%, which is pretty good. That's pretty cool because also um, for the um, UAE, so the United Arab Emirates, you can expect to see up to a 90% latency improvement on average, according to our testing. So um, go spin up some CloudFront distributions and um, make your bits get delivered a bit faster. All right, so changing gears from CloudFront to other things. So, uh, um, Shane, there's a lot of interesting, epic things going on inside AWS. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think you've uh, stolen my joke here, Pete. (laughs) But before, look, I hand the reins over to you. Let's talk about this epic announcement on the infrastructure front. But how do you spell epic? I think that's a key crux of this thing here. E-P-Y-C. So for those of you outside of the AWS ecosystem, hopefully there are a few techies out there that know what I'm alluding to here. So EPIC, E-P-Y-C. So EPIC is a new AMD-based CPU architecture that Amazon will will be offering on the EC2 front. Nice. And look, from the start, AWS has focused on choice and economy. It's been a couple of our key pillars, driven by a never-ending torrent of customer requests that power our well-known virtuous cycle. Now... What is that cycle, Shane? Because we often talk about it, but we don't really explain it, do we? We haven't. Look, and I think we've delivered on this quite well over the past few years. Mm -hmm. So, Pete, 
for our listeners, can you explain, for those who aren't familiar, the Amazon ethos and how this works? Sure. So look, at Amazon, we've learned a long time ago that uh, customers want choice, they want things quickly, and they want it at the lowest possible price. So when you look at AWS and how we've actually achieved that, in terms of selection, we give you you know 18 different geographic regions. Uh, by the way, we actually um, have four more in the works, for those that may have missed it, and that's uh, Bahrain, Cape Town, Hong Kong, Stockholm, and there's also by the GovCloud East uh, expansions. So we give you lots of choice. We give you um, lots of different choice in terms of compute models, whether it's instance sizes, containers, going down a serverless path, in terms of... Um, um, you know, databases, whether it's relational, NoSQL, graph, you know, development languages, you know, pricing models, you know, we've had lots and lots of uh, opportunities to give customers lots of choice. Uh, and on the economic side, um, you know, we've reduced prices 67 times over the last, you know, many years that AWS has actually been around. Um, without any competitive pressures. We, we've basically, you know, grew the business and because we have uh, economies of scale, that actually helps us to reduce pricing. And pricing is basically passed on to our customers, which then reduces the overall cost. So we have this flywheel, if you like, where, you know, uh, we have a lot of selection, uh, the customer experience is hopefully amazing and, you know, it's, it's indistinguishable from perfect in every single res- respect of performance and so forth and availability, uh, which then drives traffic, which means there's more people using it, by having more people using the platform, we get to l- reduce prices, and on and on, this virtuous cycle continues. So um, it's a quite an amazing place to be in, Shane, be- seeing behind the curtain how many of these things actually work. And all of this stuff really comes back to, you know, customer obsession, you know, giving our customers um, access to IT, you know, at a really low affordable price and at huge scale. And that's it, Pete. So back to this epic announcement. You know, we are now offering more selection mm-hmm. and better value in the form of AMD Epic-based EC2 instances. So tell us a bit about this. So what are these Epic instances? So these new EC2 instances are powered by AMD Epic processors, and they're priced 10% lower than a comparable EC2 instance. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. So they're designed for workloads that don't use all the compute power available to them and provide you with a new opportunity you know, to optimize your instance mix based on cost and performance. You know, for customers, it's really another lever that you can pull to tune your workloads to ensure that they're cost optimized as well as very performant. So Shane, so how do I tell, how do I spot one of these new instances? So these new instances are denoted by an A suffix. And if we cast our minds back to the last episode, these instances are available in only today the M and R instance families, mm-hmm. and they'll soon be joined by the T series. So tell me about the actual suffix. What does, what does that so, mean? As an example, you might have an R524XL. Right. Well, now there's an R5A2524XL. All it. the key specs are the same. There are some minor differences. So, you know, I encourage you to check out our EC2 products page. But why just choose, but I guess, why choose this instance type? Yes, do tell us. All right. So, you may think the primary reason is cost. And whilst they're down on CPU clock speed frequency, you know, our Intel based Xeon. CPUs, most of them are clocked at 3.1 gigahertz versus the 2.7 of AMD. But, you know, you really can't compare CPUs based on clock speed. Not at all. No, it's, it's, it's only one measure. There's a whole bunch of you know, ancillary systems that actually, you know, hang off that clock cycle. And that's exactly right. And I think that's something that is often overlooked. You know, people get hung mm-hmm. up on CPU frequency. So, you know, there's going to be different things like, you know, different branch predictions of these different CPU architectures. So, you know, trying to predict what instructions will be required to be executed. There's going to be pipelining, pipelining, um, L1 to L3 caches, memory controllers, you know, and so on. 
All that good stuff. All okay. that good stuff. And when I was growing up, this was probably show my age here, Quake 3 was a game to be playing. So, you know, <laughs> me and my friends, we would cart our computers over at that stage, you know, tower cases, yep. set up, have a LAN party. Quake 3 was a game to play. I think, I think by these standards now, it might be, you know, um, um, Fortnite. Yeah. It probably is. Oddly enough, spelled by a very similar company, Epic Games. That's who makes them. There you go. There's a correlation there, perhaps. Cor- maybe there is. But look, yeah. with Quake 3, you know, there was definitely a performance advantage running an AMD Opteron-based... Sorry, not Opteron. Actually, it was Opteron-based system. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, you know, they had a better floating-point unit. Right. So you'd be able to, you know, get more... Uh, frags per second. Well, so basically better performance, right? So it's, performance. I, I think it goes without saying that if you are going to move to these new instances, Shane, it's uh, really well w- worth looking at the SDLC, you know, this, the, the life cycle of testing, you know, bring your workloads, put them on these new instances, um, see what performance you get. Um, and for those of you who are, you know, deep, you know, deep in the nerd world of, you know, code, um, yeah, some some apps actually perform better on different CPU architectures, and certainly this is a good example. So, Shane, in in, in the context of the uh, the newly available um, eight, you know, suffix suffixed instance named um, uh, Epic uh, hardware, uh, where are these available right now? All right, they're only available in a few regions. And that is U.S. East, North Virginia, U.S. East, Ohio, U.S. West, Oregon, Europe, Ireland, and Asia Pacific, Singapore regions. Nice. All right, Pete. Over to you. Over to me. Okay, so we talked about, you know, all roads lead to databases and so forth. Well, I must be, you know, share with you that uh, we have a new announcement around the IDS for SQL Server. Um, and this new enhance- enhancement is really all about um, backup and restore capabilities for Microsoft SQL Server on IDS. So basically, you can restore a backup file to, some, uh, to, a, to a DB instance that was used to create the file. And you can also restore the same backup multiple times on the same instance. So quite often, people used to do a, a backup of a database and spin up a brand new instance. Um, and if you actually did try to bring up a database uh, onto the same IDS instance, because you can actually have up to 30 databases on per IDS instance, uh, you, you may have actually experienced occasionally uh, the the dreaded error message saying that you know you cannot restore because uh, there's already an existing database with the same name or family GUID in place already there. You know, I must interject here because I will say this is probably one of the features that I'm so happy that we've released. You love it, huh? Just the ability to densely stack your MSSQL databases. You know, assuming you know you don't have any disk queues or you've got the correct amount of memory so your pages are in RAM, you know, to give you the performance profile you mm-hmm. expect, you know, this is just a great value add for our customers. It's important, right? Because with 16 terabytes of storage for the volumes underneath, you know, your um, RDS SQL Server database, um, you can heavily stack that. Um, but it's very, very important to make sure you think about how many databases you put in there. And, and some really cool use cases are things like, you know, SharePoint gets run a lot on AWS. And uh, quite often people will, you know, um, set up SharePoint, get it configured, um, and they may want to actually have a vanilla base configuration. So by actually doing a backup at that point and then do a restore, you can create lots and lots of duplicate vanilla um, uh, databases that they that essentially end up being cloned, um, and then they can be you know put into a different department or business unit to be able to you know be con- be consistent and uh, look the same, um, and then your users can configure those accordingly afterwards. So it's a really nice way of uh, rapidly stamping out uh, lots of similar databases for you know even dev test workloads yeah, on the same instance. It is a good pattern because you know we say all roads lead to Rome. Everything's coming back to this database tier. Well, you know. Things fail all the time, and we say mm-hmm. that here they inside do. Amazon. 
And with things failing all the time, you may not want to be reliant on a single EC2 instance. So you might have a mirrored or a always-on group for Microsoft SQL Server, and because you've got multiple machines mm-hmm. accessing, oh, being presented as one logical database instance, you want to stack your databases potentially, you know, quite... Uh, quite deep on these. Oh, yeah. And look, if you're a SaaS provider and you're doing, you know, lots of, uh, you know, uh, something as a service, you definitely want to utilize as much of the infrastructure as possible to keep the, the, the cost to serve as low as possible. And this is where these scenarios come into play. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for these database engines, Pete, that, you know, that aren't free. You know, there are licensing ramifications around this. So you want to, you know, get that high ROI on your investment. Indeed, which, which is why we see a lot of customers pivot to, um, you know, other data, databases like Aurora, for example, or use MySQL or MariaDB, Postgres. Um, you know, just, just speaking of those, by the way, um, if you're looking at uh, heavily stacking your databases, um, so I mentioned before that for Microsoft SQL Server on IDS, we support up to 30 databases per instance. For Oracle, we support one database, so you can't really do too much with it. But for the other databases like Postgres, Maria, MySQL, and of course Aurora, there is no limit imposed by any kind of software restrictions uh, to deploy multiple databases. But please, please, please be very careful with how many you put on there because there is a contention between database workload, different access profiles, and all of those can actually in some cases, bring a database to a crawl. Yeah, you don't want to mix your OLAP and OLTP workloads. Not at all. So Shane, we've talked about you know this awesome stuff around um, MSSQL, but tell us a little bit more about the restore announcement that we've got around similar things here. Okay, so that was one announcement, but we also made an announcement around restoration. Mm-hmm. But I think in order to provide some context on the why, we need to dive a bit deeper here on database-level replication options that are available in Microsoft SQL Server. So what's out there? Because I think, I think log shipping is a typical classic way of, uh, of doing that, but not even just for Microsoft SQL Server, for any database. Yeah, all right. So a given database in Microsoft SQL Server can be mirrored, log shipped, or part of an availability group. So mm-hmm. what are all these terms? So, you tell us. All right, let me tell you. So log shipping, as you alluded to, Pete, has been around, I think... For donkeys, right? For donkeys. Is. I started playing with SQL Server on Windows NT4, so SQL Server 6.5, and it's still available in the latest version of 2017 today. <laughs> so log shipping, it's asynchronous in nature, it's file-based, and it's consumed by destination system. And this destination system, so another instance of SQL can be set to be maybe like, you know, an hour behind. So you can allow, you can start consuming those log shipped files and should something go wrong with your production system due to say, you know, Pete, maybe you were, you dropped a table, you press the wrong button. Mm-hmm. When it's replicated I do that all, off, all the time, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm surprised you're still here. <laughs> yes, but, but if I do do that, then potentially there's a, there's a window, right, for the log, that, that log hasn't shipped over to the other database, that is the gap, right? Correct. And, you know, log shipping is often key, even in modern-day BCP, you know, DR strategies. You can have a one-to-many replication method. So mm. you might have your log shipping set to a server that's uh, kept in sync, and you also may have a server that is maybe in another AWS region that's another maybe an hour behind, etc. Yeah. So in this scenario, failover though is measured in minutes, and you know potentially minutes closer to an hour in the scenario here. Yeah. So just tweak it to your own to your own needs, right? But you know still very relevant mm-hmm. in 2018. Oh, of course. So what about uh, mirroring? We All touched right. on that before. Let's, so let's, mirroring. let's dig, dig, dig a little bit deeper into mirroring. Just like RAID one here, Pete. Mm-hmm. So. On SQL Server, an instance acts as a primary, which is called the principal, yep. while the other mirrored instance, funnily enough, is called the mirror. 
And in special cases, there can be a third instance which acts as a witness, and mirroring can operate in two different modes. So there is the high safety mode where data is written and committed on the principal and the mirror in a synchronous manner. Right, which, which can actually slow you down though, right? It absolutely can, because only after the committal to both databases, the database application can continue with activity. Right. Because you know things are lockstep together. So whilst this is really far, oh, sorry, higher safety, you're only as fast as your weakest link. So networks, disk I.O., all those kind of aspects can actually slow you down. So you need to be make sure that both those systems are in super-duper high-tuned configurations. Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. And oh, look, in the past, I've seen scenarios where this has caused problems because you might have a production system that is scaled up really big mm-hmm. and the witness server, the mirror, sorry, not the mirror server, yeah. may be a little bit smaller. So under high load, you're only as fast as that mirror server. So, you know, you're only as fast as the weakest link. Yeah, we've seen customers do this themselves on EC2 uh, for a number number of years. Um, And, yeah, they've been doing this across AZs, for instance. So, yeah, do take into consideration inter-AZ latencies um, as also being a a factor or potentially um, put them in the same AZ with maybe... um, you know, long shipping going elsewhere afterwards. But anyway, yeah. so I, I digress. So tell me about the high-performance version of Marine. All right. So What's gonna, the difference there? We're going to switch here from synchronous to asynchronous communication. Right. Good old async. Mm-hmm. Good old async. All right. It's like a UDP packet flying out here. <laughs> we're going to send it, and then we're going to forget. So data gets written and committed on the principal server, and then it's sent and committed to the mirror server. Mm-hmm. After it's been sent, the database, applic- or database engine is going to return that query, that record set, back to the application. Mm-hmm. So in this scenario here, automatic failover isn't possible and a witness can't be used. And this is ultimately how RDS for SQL Server is architected on using standard edition for two AZs. Right. And it gives that balance between performance and redundancy. And failover is typically measured in seconds to you know maybe minutes. And that's dependent primarily on the size of the database that is running. So if you need to you know, start the MSSQL service, you need to bring online, you know, maybe like a 50 terabyte database, mm-hmm. or actually not 50 terabyte if it's running on RDS, <laughs> we'll say 16 terabyte. Yes. It's going to take some time. It will. It'll take a while. Versus like a 50 meg database that yeah. you might be running. You know, cool. it's, you know, a, a, a law of maybe disk IO, et cetera, that you just can't escape here. Indeed. So cap theorem, right? Cap theorem. <laughs> Indeed. All right. So Shane, the nirvana of all this is obviously always on in SQL Server. You want to you unpack that a little bit for our listeners Let's and uh, you know, start heading towards that announcement? All right. So always on. Mm. You know, it is, as you mentioned, the nirvana of high availability for SQL Server. You know, and if configured correctly, say downtime, what downtime? Yeah. The driver, though, in your application will need to leverage the SQL Server listener, which is provided by SQL Server always on. Yeah, so there's a couple of small changes you got to make on the connection string as well. Um, but these are just tiny little changes. These are tiny little changes, change. but you can't just uh, you know change your connection string. You may need to ensure that you're using the relevant driver in your application to take advantage. That's critical. Mm-hmm. So if you're using a Microsoft Jet driver from <laughs> that used to 2000 use from for 2000 access? for your Access database, <laughs> well, it'll connect, but it will not be able to make use of SQL Server always on. Indeed. So with always on, you know, your application will understand what server is the writing server. Mm-hmm. What servers can be used for read-only um, access. access. And that's good because that can actually reduce the load on your database engine. You might even do your backups of mm-hmm. a read-only server. And when failure occurs, it will automatically fail over to the SQL Server database that's up to date. With the latest information. Yeah, with the latest information. Yeah. So what's the announcement, Shane? So what are we doing with, um, with Always On 
um, in IDS. Earlier today, we launched SQL Server Always On Availability Groups for SQL Server 2016 Enterprise Edition, a latest minor version. That's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. Mm -hmm. So let's continue that. So it is only for version 13.00.5216.0.v1. So just to be clear, SQL Server Always On Availability Groups is now available on the Enterprise Edition and only on the latest minor version of SQL Server 2016 Enterprise. So, so what are we doing that's magic here as well? There's a couple of extra things under the hood that speed up the restoration as well. Yeah, okay. So now when you restore a database with Amazon RDS, though previously when a restoration would take place, we would restore the data to the primary server mm-hmm. and then it would need to seed towards the mirror server. Well, now with a recent announcement, databases will be restored to both the primary and the mirror server at the same time. Perfect. So what this means is SQL Server will automatically stay up to date because you can resume a lot quickly. There'll be no uh, requirement for this data to be seeded. Got it. So basically, we bring it up on both nodes, let the two nodes sync and we're off and running as opposed to seeding it on one and then having it replicate to the others. Yeah, so if we go back to the example before of a 16 terabyte database, Mm -hmm. that can take some time. Indeed. Even maybe in a placement group or using uh, EC2 traditional networking, it can take time. So what we're doing is tightening that, I guess that period where you're exposed and reliant Mm -hmm. on the hardware underpinning your EC2 instance. Got it, cool, that's a a great addition to uh, our portfolio. It very much is. Awesome, Shane. Hey, Pete. Mm-hmm. Three DBAs walk into a NoSQL bar. <laughs> yeah, what happens there? Soon after they leave, they couldn't find a table. <laughs> Badum. Badum. We need sound effects. <laughs> we do need some sound effects. Right. Okay. Well, we need to, we need to look at look at the, uh, the, the script writing in this show, I think. Awesome. So, hey, listen, guys. Um, uh, we've actually got a truckload of... Um, new versions for MySQL available, Shane. We do. You know, I can't believe we have 19 different variants now. That is amazing. That that is customer choice. That is a lot. Uh, Again, coming back to that virtuous cycle is we want to give you as much choice as possible. But again, be aware that um, with these minor uh, database variations, all these extra 19, if you like, um, they come with additional security improvements and patches. Uh, so please do consider moving to the late, latest version uh, of a particular database engine. Um, and remember, under IDS, you actually have to opt out of uh, letting us uh, do a minor patch uh, for your database. But also be, be very considerate that uh, you know if you are using common off-the-shelf application software stacks, um, please ensure that you are using the right recommended software version uh, according to your vendor. We don't want to make sure that we put you out of compliance in any shape or your form, but it does mean you have to be very careful. So for um, MySQL 5.7, we support up to version .23. Uh, For MySQL 5.6, up to version .41. And for MySQL 5.5, up to version .61, Shane. So uh, that's a heck of a lot of choice there. It's a lot of choice there. All right. So, Pete, they were minor versions. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about a major version. Yes, so specifically, we talk about MySQL version 8.0. That uh, is exactly what I'm alluding to. So, ah, a in, lot of cool stuff there. Why would, I, why would I want to move to 8, Shane? I mean, what are the extra benefits and features that uh, I'm going to get out of the box? Well, you know, being a performance-orientated person, for me, straight up, it's the performance improvements. You know, 
MySQL are touting 2x higher performance versus MySQL 7 for InnoDB performance. So for read writes, you know, really high IO bound and high contention based mm-hmm. workloads, mm-hmm. over a 2x performance over MySQL 5.7. Wow. So that alone for me is absolutely. So, so for me, I, I like the actual GIS support. They've got more data types for special data types and indexes and functions. Um, I think they've got like f- over 5,000 different uh, special reference systems, which is pretty impressive, including over 4,600 4, projections. So this is for flat maps, um, for geographical ellipsoid representations of Earth and other sort of Cartesian kind of calculations, which are really important if you're doing geofencing in your application. So having that occur in an actual database makes your app logical and simpler. Yeah, look, I, th- I think more options for more modern-day applications. You know, the, the default character set has changed now to UTF-8 MB4, so, you know, a more modern character set. And that's really important, by the way. And by the way, little things like that can actually get you. Uh, so to, d- to dive into that, for example, just being very mindful, depending on the schema definition of the character sets, your, your, uh, your, your, your queries may actually not work, depending on how you compare characters at, at, at that level. And because these, for example, support, you know, multilingual, multi, multi-byte representations of characters, uh, you've got to be extra super careful. Uh, I remember being bitten by this many, many years ago when I first came across schema changes. And uh, yeah, once all the UTFs came along with different encodings, um, they can certainly mess, mess, mess your queries up. Yeah, and probably going going back to that question, what's my favorite? You know, I think these days you spend a lot of time when you're writing code dealing with JSON. So oh, yeah. in MySQL 8, there are functions from converting JSON to relational tables. So, you know, rather than returning that data from a database engine, you could have that conversion done by the database engine itself, you know, reducing some of that heavy lifting yourself. Yeah, indeed. So Shane, if I wanted to move from you know, our previous version, say from MySQL 5x, whatever, running, to 8, what do I do? All right, so you can perform an in-place upgrade for major versions of MySQL on Amazon RDS. So walk me through it. How, what do I do? All right, so depending on what version you're already on, it will depend on the path you need to take. Okay. So you can't so just, just say I'm a real laggard and I'm on 5.5. I'm sitting back a while. I haven't made any, any changes. What do I do? I'd probably ask, you know, how Why? can you've built up this tech debt, Pete? <laughs> But, you know, assuming you've got a wonderful reason, and I'm sure you do, from 5.5, you can jump to 5.6, from 5.6 to 5.7, and only from 5.7 to MySQL 8.0. So I shouldn't go 5.5 straight to 8. You can't, actually, not via the RDS console. Good to know, good to know. I I think because there's a lot of changes underneath the hood, and um, from my understanding, from many of the years of uh, playing in this space, yes, there are a a lot of incremental changes, that you can actually evolve your databases through, but yeah, jumping from a very old version to a new, to, to, to the latest, can uh, yeah, your mileage will certainly vary. Totally, and that's you know because jumping from major versions always involves some form of compatibility risk, and that's why we don't automatically do this. So you need to make a request to modify the DB instance, mm-hmm. and it goes without saying you should thoroughly test any upgrade before upgrading your production instances. Absolutely. So Shane, how do I do it? Do I do it via the CLI? Do I do it via uh, the console? What are my options? You can use both. But, you know, what I would probably do is log into your existing RDS database, take a snapshot of it, Mm -hmm. and deploy it to a newer version. Do all your testing, go through the upgrade process yourself, experiment, you know, in a safe environment. Sandbox it. Before deciding whether or not you're going to upgrade that original DB instance. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, I'll, I'll go and experiment with my databases. So Shane, we've spoken a lot about relational databases so far. So again, let's just change gears a little bit more. Um, 
and I'm not talking about going to NoSQL, as you may think, um, but I'm thinking about you know maybe a different database that a lot of people are using. That's Amazon Athena. There's some exci- exciting announcements in this space. All right, teach me here, Pete, because <laughs> I am guilty of to date really not dipping my toes in the Athena pool. Or, you know, I've run through the quick starts, but I haven't used it in anger. So I'm, li- I'm all ears here. Ah, well, see, I, I, I use it a lot, in fact, because, um, you know, a lot of the um, episodes that still get downloaded occasionally from the out of the S3 bucket where we actually host the episodes, I actually do our stats analysis using Athena. Not publicly accessible, right? Not publicly accessible. Um, well, they just, the, the, the files are, but not anything else. So some of the um, downloadable episodes which you may have seen in the past uh, have come out of S3 and they still do occasionally. So um, that's how we know who you are in terms of at least what IP you are coming from. Uh, and then we do some nice analytics to better understand our listeners. But I digress. So Amazon Athena, for those of you who are haven't played with it enough as obviously um, it's an interactive query service that makes it even more efficient to analyze lots of data that may actually be sitting in Amazon S3 or other locations using very pretty much standard queries. So think of Athena as a serverless database uh, which has no infrastructure for you to manage and you only pay for the queries that you actually run, Shane. Um, and that's a pretty good deal because it's only five bucks um, for, um, you know, a couple of terabytes. Yeah, right? five dollars per terabyte pass. Yes. Pause, pause, right? So you have to actually query that. So, so I have uh, several gigabytes of, uh, actually tens of gigabytes, in fact, of, of logs that I actually parse every single month to find out what this actual stats look like. So the cool thing about what we've actually done here is that when you run a query in Athena, you may have lots of files sitting in your S3 bucket, uh, like log files in my case, um, and um, every time I need to rerun it, it does take about, uh, I think it's about six minutes uh, to get the results that I actually run. Um, but there's a new feature that we've actually created, and that's actually called CTAS, Shane. Any idea what that stands for? Uh, create. <laughs> close, close. Tables as maybe a statement? As a select statement. Oh, awesome, very close. close. So CTAS stands for create table as a select statement. And the idea is this. Instead of going through my, you know, uh, two and a half years of tech chat um, download stats, um, when I actually run, create the query, I can actually have the output, in other words, the result set, pushed into another table which gets saved in S3. So that I can then perhaps run another query which will run through a subset of that data. That's great because previously with Athena, Mm -hmm. or by default, Athena stores the output as a CSV file on S3. So yeah, so in this case, basically you end up being able to create a whole bunch of um, you know result sets uh, in table format. So that joke that we opened up with uh, becomes yeah, they do get a table now, right? So the the beauty of this is uh, it also speeds things up because at, uh, fundamentally uh, you can then run run the next query against the table that you had actually created via CTAS. So that way you can almost create tables on a month by month basis. So create a pipeline of queries if you like from a very large data lake that you may have of your data which is a very powerful way of doing queries, Shane. And I read, Pete, that these CTAS statements are written in Parquet format as well as other formats like Apache, Orc, Arvo, JSON, Text, as well as, you know, Avro, using... you name it. Yeah, JSON. Yeah, so you, we actually give you an option. When you actually write the query, uh, you can actually select the format of the output uh, of the actual file. So we tell you, you can say, I want to go into an S3 bucket at a certain location, uh, and here's the actual um, compression format that we're actually going to be using for storing these files. So things like Parquet, for example, are really great for uh, very rapidly parsing through very large, bulky um, data sets. Nice. All right. So mm-hmm. as a developer, as a DBA, why would I use a CTAS statement over, you know, the tried and true SQL select star from sure, nah. all? 
in, it, well, I probably com- shouldn't do that, should I? Uh, no, no, you can, but it might just take a little, little bit longer to get your results set. So it really comes down to uh, efficiency of time, so speed. Uh, so I talked about earlier about you know giving customers choice. Well, you, you can do that. Select all from everything, Shane, and uh, you know watch your watch your results coming back to you. Or you can be far more efficient and be very laser focused on a particular query that you want to run. And most DBAs uh, and developers will certainly focus on. I only want to look at the last thirty days or something. So you, you can actually use CTAS to create the tables. Uh, the first time you run it will take obviously longer because you're going through the entire data set. But then once you've created the CTAS table you can just look at that particular table. So basically you're saving yourself money because you're running fewer queries and scanning less data. But I think equally as important, you're saving time. It because is. a query may take 10 minutes to run, potentially mm-hmm. if you're parsing, you know, you, you may only have gigabytes to parse, but there may be... Petabytes cost- of data. Exactly yeah. right. No, indeed. So yeah, so certainly uh, I will be playing with these next time I get a chance. So I will be re- revamping my pipeline uh, of running my uh, analytics over the tech chat downloads. Awesome. All right. So, Pete, what is the difference, though, between a SQL view and a CTAS query? Great question. Okay, so so basically when you use CTAS, um, you run a query, and that query provides an output and saves it for next access. Um, whereas when you run a query, uh, a view really does not actually write any data out to any particular location. So it's all in memory. It's just a view. So it's a visibility of something that's already there. It's held in memory. It's very ephemeral. It disappears. Whereas in this case, CTAS actually, you know, think of it as almost writing the views to disk. That's another way of looking at it. All right. So when I'm using Athena today, as we mentioned, the results end up being stored on Amazon S3 as a CSV file. Mm-hmm. Where do the CTAS tables live? They actually go and sit in a bucket called aws-athena-query-results-your-account-id-region. But you certainly can change that. That's a default location. And be aware that also uh, that key, that the actual you know location where the file is saved, will actually be checked before we write again. So we will not overwrite tables you've created before. Uh, we certainly don't want, to, don't want you to accidentally delete your information. So uh, these are all basically saved on S3. Cool. All right. In whatever format you selected. In, that's customer choice. Customer choice. All right. So Athena now writing CTAS queries. Which you didn't that, do before. Which mm-hmm. you didn't do before. How does this change billing, given you know the $5 per terabyte of parsing? So basically, uh, you know, currently Athena charges you know, all of our customers uh, for the actual data scan, which is a, a, the $5 per terabyte during execution of your queries. But, and there is actually no charge for CTAS queries being created and stored. Obviously, you're going to incur an S3 charge because obviously it's going to a bucket, but these are you know very small number of cents. Uh, so fundamentally, there is no charge for actually writing. But again, if you start scanning the CTS queries, you are being charged at the $5 per terabyte. So if you want to see this in action, so CTAS with Athena, there is a great blog post titled, funnily mm-hmm. enough, Using CTAS Statements with Amazon Athena to Reduce Cost and Improve Performance. And the examples in this document or in this blog post Talk about you know log parsing, which is a common job of a lot of admins or report report analysts out there. So oh, yeah. take a look at that. Now, Shane, uh, I'm looking at the time again, and we're out of it as always. Wow, look, I feel like an honorary DBA today. You know, <laughs> select topics from Tech Chat where episode equals 35, and you get what four result sets? Four records returned in our record set. <laughs> so what were they again? Let's oh. just recap what we covered in the show today. Okay, we spoke about AMD's epic CPU architecture and how they found their way into EC2. Mm-hmm. With the R and M series today, with more to follow, mm-hmm. and just remember they have that A suffix. 
That's right. In the name of the instance type. In the name of the instance type. Then we had SQL Server. We did. We had RDS updates around backup and restore. And finally, we've added and brought support for Always On. Mm-hmm. On Remember, SQL Server 2016 Enterprise, latest minor version. Yep. Then we had the uh, multiple MySQL versions updates. We did. So we had some minor and major updates versions as well mm-hmm. as approaches you can use you know, to upgrade. And finally, Pete, you introduced us to Athena CTAS, allowing customers to save time and money. A feature that I'm certainly going to be using. So guys, listen, as, uh, as always, we love to hear your feedback, what's working, what you like, what you don't like. Uh, so please uh, email us at awstechchat at amazon.com um, and give us your feedback. But until next time, keep building. Keep building, guys. Bye for now. Bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.